this morning, I want to use Mark chapter 9 to see the power of the resurrection and how the resurrection draws us back to the word of God in prayer. Let me pray. We're going to get started going through these verses. Father, thank you for the victory that we have through Jesus. Thank you for the gift of a church family, what it means to gather together, to sing, to pray, to study scripture. God, some of the most important worship that happens this morning will be conversations before and after this time. God, thank you for people who love one another, encourage one another. We keep pointing each other to Jesus because he is worthy. And so, Father, I pray from these verses that we study this morning, remind us of the resurrection, remind us of how good your word is, and God, may we be called to prayer and praise in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we got a lot of verses to cover. Let's get started. Verse one of Mark chapter nine. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Mark 9.1 is a bridge verse from what's been happening in chapter 8 to what's going to happen in just a second in chapter 9. It's, it's this bridge between the two chapters. And Jesus is establishing here that some who he's talking to aren't going to die until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And there's huge questions about what does it mean for the kingdom of God to come in power? This is one of those times to remember in your Bible there are statements given that you need to think of as a telescope, as starting here and pushing into the future. This is how we read a lot of Old Testament prophecy. This is how we read a lot of prophecy from Jesus, statements from Jesus. This verse seems to be pointing immediately to the transfiguration story that's gonna happen in the next few verses. But it's also pointing to the cross and resurrection. And it's also pointing to the Holy Spirit coming and establishing the church. And it's also pointing to the return of Christ one day. And you read these verses and you think, what's Jesus referring to? Remember to think of it as a telescope. He's talking about something immediate, but there's also going to be other things that we're looking to in the future of what does it look like for the kingdom of God to come in power. But Jesus is setting us up here to think about resurrection power. Then in verse two, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. We've already talked in the Gospel of Mark how Mark has purposely divided his book, his uh, gospel, into seven parts, seven days, where the resurrection is the seventh day that new creation is coming. So it may be a reference to the resurrection, but almost certainly what Mark is doing here is he's pointing back to Exodus chapter 24 in your Bible. If your Bible doesn't have those handy reference notes in there, draw a huge star out beside Mark chapter 9 verse 2 and write Exodus 24 because there are all these Old Testament echoes that are reverberating here. There, Mark is telling us, hey, what happened in Exodus 24 when Moses took some people up on the mountain and they encountered the glory of God, that's about to happen again. So we've, we've talked before about how your Bible has hyperlinks in it, or sometimes you think about these big connecting lines that go back to the Old Testament. There's a massive one right here. This verse screams Exodus chapter 24 as Moses took these people up onto the mountain to encounter the glory of God. Middle of verse two, what happens to Jesus here? He was transfigured before them 
and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, you may not pick this up immediately in Scripture, but we know that this story happened between Memorial Day and Labor Day because Jesus has all this white on. So we know when the story happened. I know that may be some deep Bible study that you wouldn't have picked up otherwise, but I just wanted you to see that, that Jesus here is radiating. These clothes are intensely white. It's something divine happening in this moment. What's happening here? Who Jesus truly is, his identity The faith that people have in him is now becoming sight. What we may not have otherwise seen to be true about Jesus, we are seeing to be true. We're seeing his true identity in this moment. Kids, there's a really neat way to remember this, if you'll make a connection on this. So Moses, whose name begins with M, think about Moses and the word moon, M-O-O-N. So the moon shines because the sun shines on it, and then we can see the moon. Moses, in the Old Testament, we know that he encountered the glory of God, and it says that he was radiant, that he was expressing the light that shone on him. So Moses was like the moon. Jesus is the Son of God, S-O-N, and he's like the sun, S-U-N. He radiates because of who he is, not because he's reflecting something else. Moses is like the moon. He radiated the glory of God. He showed the glory of God because God's glory shone on him. Jesus is God with us. He is radiating this glory because of who he is. That he's not just a teacher or a historical figure or a miracle worker. He is Lord, and he is Christ, and he is Savior, and he is the radiance of of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. What we see right here on this mountain is Jesus showing the people who he truly is. We might say he's showing his true colors. Why, he's showing through his radiance and his glory here. Verse four, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Like, that feels random. Why do Elijah and Moses show up here? Well, when you again start connecting back to the Old Testament, there's so many tie-ins between Moses and Elijah. At the very end of the Old Testament part of your Bible, remember your Bible has the Old Testament at the beginning, then the New Testament. At the very end in the book of Malachi, the last two figures who are mentioned in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. So a Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament, they're preparing for the coming of Christ. And when you go back to the Old Testament, two figures who went up on a mountain and met with God are Moses and Elijah. They have experience with this. They know what it is to go up on the mountain and experience the glory of God. And here they're meeting with Jesus saying all that the Old Testament has prepared for, Jesus is bringing to fulfillment. And then in verse five, our friend Peter. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. (laughs) Who hasn't made this mistake uh, before? So people are scared. Maybe you're around people who are grieving. Maybe you're in an awkward situation and you have the person who just feels the pressure to say something, like to fill up the silence, 
and then it just comes out all wrong. Uh, if you're ever afraid, if you're ever with people who are grieving, if you're ever in an awkward situation, it's probably better just to be quiet than to feel like you need to, to fill up the space here because Peter fills up the space here and we see that he's starting to understand what's happening, but he doesn't truly understand because he says here, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Sure, it's good we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter doesn't understand that Moses and Elijah are here to point to Jesus, not to be put on the same level as Jesus. There aren't three figures here who need a tent. There is one figure here who is the focus, and it's Jesus. And Peter wants to establish these tents because he wants to stay here on the mountain. He says, this is a good moment. We need to stay right here. But they're not supposed to stay on the mountain, are they? Jesus is trying to get to the cross. This mountaintop experience is on the way to the cross, which is on the way to the resurrection. And I just want to remind you this morning, your spiritual life, your call to follow Jesus is not spent primarily on the spiritual mountains of your life. We have these huge moments. We have these Falls Creek camp moments. We have these big moments where God shows up in a really powerful way in your life and it feels so close and it feels so powerful. And then guess what? You wake up the next day and life keeps going on. And there's a temptation in the spiritual life to say, I want to go back to that spiritual mountain. Like, I want that emotion. I want that experience. I want that feeling. But we're not meant to live there. We're called to go to the cross and the resurrection, to follow Jesus, to come down on this mountain. And Peter says, let us stay right here. And Jesus says, no, that's not what it means to follow me. Those mountaintop experiences, those Falls Creek experiences you have, those powerful moments when God shows up in your life, they show you more of who Jesus is, and they prepare you for what's ahead, but they're not where you're meant to live. They're not where you're meant to stay. Jesus has something more for us. He has something more of what it is to follow him. Verse seven, what happens in this moment? A cloud overshadowed them. More Old Testament imagery from Exodus. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Think of how weak Peter's words must have sounded, followed immediately by the voice of God coming from the heavens here. And if you think to yourself, hey, those words there, those sound familiar, they sound familiar because they're the words that were used at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus' ministry began with the Father speaking from heaven that you are my beloved son, you I'm well pleased. And now he's revealing that to the disciples who are with him. The voice of God is speaking again from heaven, showing this to be true. The word of God determines who Jesus is and what he's gonna do, not what Peter says. Then in verse eight, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Man, that's a good phrase. <laughs> it wasn't about Moses. It wasn't about Elijah. It wasn't about the white clothes. It wasn't about the mountaintop experience. What was this whole story about? To focus them on Jesus. Jesus' identity and Jesus' mission to go to the cross and to the resurrection. Verse nine, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Why? Because the time wasn't right. The, the Son of Man had not risen from the dead. Later, they would meet him on a mountain, and Jesus would say, now's the time to go tell. Now's not the time. We still have to get to the cross, and then beyond the cross and the resurrection, then you'll go to a mountain, and then you'll go tell people. Verse 10, 
So they kept the, man, the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they ask, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. This is the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi saying that Elijah's gonna come and prepare the way of the Lord. Elijah does come, but also how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Verse 13, but I tell you, Jesus said, that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. What's Jesus talking about there? When he's referring to Elijah, he's talking about the work of John the Baptist to come to prepare the way of the Lord. And what happened to John the Baptist when he came to announce the coming of the kingdom of heaven? Well, ultimately he was killed. Jesus is saying, this is the way it's going to be. Yes, there's gonna be resurrection. Yes, there's gonna be the coming of the kingdom of God beyond this, but we still have to go to the cross. What I want you to see from the story is the connection between this transfiguration story and the cross. Because the way Mark sets this out, there are so many incredible parallels. It's showing us we're gonna go to the cross and then we're gonna see the power of the resurrection and then you're gonna know who Jesus is. That at the transfiguration, it was a private event. Just a few people were there. The cross is gonna be public. At the transfiguration, you had two prophets. At the cross, Jesus is surrounded by two thieves. Transfiguration, three men are watching up close. The cross, three women are watching from a distance. Transfiguration, Jesus' clothes are glowing. The cross, his clothes are taken away and sold. At the transfiguration, there's this divine voice saying, this is my son. At the cross, you have the same words, but it comes from whom? comes from a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier who's saying this, that this truly was the Son of God. In both of the stories, Elijah is brought into play. Mark is telling us, when you see the transfiguration story, you need to think about the cross and the resurrection because at the cross and the resurrection, you will see the identity and the plans and the power of Jesus revealed. So point number one this morning is that when we think about the power of the resurrection, we are thinking about the word of God. The word of God that was spoken from heaven, the word of God that was displayed to us through Jesus. To understand the power of the resurrection, we have to understand the word of God. What God has prepared through the law and the prophets, through the Old Testament portion of your Bible, that then leads to the New Testament portion of your Bible, where Jesus' glory and his mission are revealed. And when we think about the scriptures, the way they're able to point us to salvation, that if you're here this morning and you're tired of human advice to get your life together, can I point you back to the word of God? That if you're here this morning and you're trying to think, I keep trying to get my life together and I'm not making much progress and I'm tired of people telling me what to do, the word of God speaks to us and says, yes, we live in a world of brokenness because of sin. But God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Let the word of God come to you as good news this morning that when we experience God's word, we see the plans that he's prepared, we see the future that he has in front of us and our hope is found in Jesus. That the Bible is this unified story that points us to Jesus, who he is and what he's come to do. 
And the word of God, when you experience the power of the resurrection through the word of God, it produces endurance and encouragement in your life. You turn back to the word of God because of the way God's word brings endurance and encouragement. This last week, I met with, uh, before the first day of school for our Compass weekday preschool program, I met with our Compass preschool teachers and administrators, and we looked at Romans chapter 15, verse 4, that talks about the endurance and encouragement comes through scriptures. Because you think about anybody who needs endurance and encouragement, it's preschool teachers. Like, they're, they're at the top of the list of people who need endurance and encouragement. And, and you may or may not be a preschool teacher, but there's a good chance when you think about your life, you need endurance to keep coming, to keep going, and you need encouragement that God's at work even when it doesn't feel like that or even when you can't see that. And I'm here to tell you today that endurance and encouragement comes in your life through the word of God. Turn back to the word of God. Read the word of God. We've, we've established these uh, reading plans. If you don't know where to stop, start, pick up a reading plan. Connect with a small group. Connect with a Sunday school class. Read the Gospel of Mark. Turn back and read the book of Exodus. Turn to the word of God, because when you turn to God's word, we find the power of the resurrection, we find endurance, we find encouragement, and it all points us to Jesus. And then they come down off the mountain, and what happens in verse 14? When they came down to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes were arguing with them. Now this is a neat verse if you've been with us all the way through the Gospel of Mark. Remember in the Gospel of Mark there are three main groups, the disciples, the crowds, and the religious leaders. This verse has all three. The disciples who are trying to follow Jesus, the crowds who aren't sure if they want to, and the religious leaders who want to oppose Jesus. So this is a story that's telling us different ways that people are responding to Jesus. Verse 15, immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Back to the Old Testament, when Moses went up on the mountain, you know what the people did down at the foot of the mountain? They were grumbling and arguing and turning against God. Jesus goes up on the mountain here in Mark chapter 9. What were the disciples doing who were left behind? They were grumbling and arguing and struggling to trust in God's way. Verse 17, someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Just one quick observation there. When it says the disciples were not able to, it's using a word that in the Gospel of Mark always refers to human strength. So what he's saying here is the disciples, using their own human strength, using their own power, they weren't able to do this. And Jesus says, faithless generation, you, you don't see the big picture, you don't see my power, you don't see who I am, what I'm trying to do here. So verse 20, they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. 
and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him in verse 23, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I've often thought that if my life had a motto, it's probably that phrase right there. I believe, help my unbelief. Next week, we're gonna start kind of a standalone three-week sermon series on the issue of doubt. There are a lot of people that show up to church every week. There are a lot of people who have been around church a long time, and you struggle with doubts. What do I believe? Is this true? How can we know that this is true? So we're gonna go through this process of taking this man's statement, I believe, help my unbelief. How do we handle doubt? How do we respond to these things right here? So we're gonna save this comment, this I believe, help my unbelief, we're gonna push this ahead and we're gonna use three weeks to unfold what does it mean to deal with doubt in our lives. Look at the next verse right now here, verse 26, or verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. Get ready for resurrection language again, okay? He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Another defeat of evil and sin that leads to life beyond death. Another picture of the resurrection. Verse 28, when Jesus had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, hey, why could we not cast that demon out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Here's these disciples trying to understand the way of Jesus, trying to do the work Jesus has called them to do, but they're not able to do it in this situation. I want to show you, this story shows us three danger signs about ineffective ministry when we're trying to do the work of God and we're not seeing the results, we're not seeing the work done. This story shows us that there are three signs here. Arguing and grumbling, a dependence on techniques instead of dependence on God, and a lack of prayer. And as you look at those, as you sit and think about those as part of a church family, I hope in a good way that screen terrifies us. Because you think about the ministry that we've been called to as the people of God. You think about the ministry we've been called to as a church. What could stand in the way of that? Arguing and grumbling when we should be praying depending on techniques. They're, they're like, we know how to cast out demons. We've heard Jesus do this. They're trying to use a formula, not dependence on God. And if we're not careful in our lives and in church, we're looking for a formula or a secret sauce instead of ultimate dependence on the power of God to do what only he can do. And instead of praying, what are they doing? They're grumbling. They're arguing with outsiders and they're arguing with one another. Friends, as a church, we need to remember that this man and his family are hurting while the disciples are turning or are, are arguing. Uh, said again, there's a lot of people around us in our world who are hurting. Let's not be the religious people who are standing around arguing when there are people around us who need Jesus. Let us turn and say, God, we are dependent on you. 
We're not going to use any sort of human strength. We need your power. We're going to turn to you in prayer. And so point number two for the sermon is really simple. We experience the resurrection of power of Jesus through prayer. As we trust in God, as we trust in his power to overcome evil and suffering and sin and death, as we trust in the power of God to overcome our own doubts and our own fears. And when we talk about prayer, it's easy to think about prayer and feel like, yeah, but prayer's not doing anything. The moment you think that, and I'm guilty of this as well, take a quick step back and remember prayer is exactly what we've been called to do. Prayer doesn't keep us from doing the work of God. Prayer fuels the work of God in our lives. Prayer fuels the work of God for our church. I was talking to a missionary who's up in Canada, connected to the church plant that we're tied with there in Calgary, Canada. And he talked about this last week, how prayer is the air of the hot air balloon of the church. Prayer is what keeps that hot air balloon going. Now, I know you're tempted to say, yes, when you preach, there's a lot of hot air. I understand that. Uh, I'll help you with the joke before you get there first. Prayer, though, is what drives the ministry of the church. And you say, yeah, yeah, but if I pray, what if that prayer is not answered in the way that I want? And we have to admit, that's a challenge. But as we pray in faith, we will understand the ways and purposes of God more than ever before. And so when we pray, we pray, God, I need you to move. I need you to work. I believe that you're gonna work in this situation. And as I believe, I'm trusting in your plans and your purposes. Just yesterday afternoon, I had a chance to talk with one of our neighbors who's going through a difficult situation in his life. And he talked about the only thing that's getting me through this situation is the word of God and prayer. I need to hear from God's word what is true, and I need to trust him through prayer. And so as we wrap up today, my call to you is to pray. Let's be a church that's not characterized by arguing and grumbling, and I don't think we are. Let's, let's not go down that road. Let's not be a church that depends on secret sauce or techniques more than we do on dependence on God. And let's not be a church that ever, ever turns our back on prayer. God, we must pray. We must praise you. We must turn to you. And so we're going to do that here at the end of the service. I'm going to pray over you. And after I pray over you, I'm going to call you to come here to the front and pray. If you need people to pray for you, there's going to be people around the room. You may want to pray right where you are with your family and friends. Jaron's going to begin leading us in two final songs. The best thing you can do might be that you just stand up and sing these songs as your prayer to God. God, I trust you. I believe you. I need your power in my life. Where's our hope as a church? We turn to the word of God, and we turn to him in prayer. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for a church that loves to study scripture. God, thank you for your word that, that shows us the power of the resurrection, that shows us who Jesus is, that shows us how Jesus went to the cross to die for us in our place, taking our sins so that we could have life. And God, that power that we need in our lives, in our families, in our nation, in our world, God, that power, it's not something we can manufacture on our own. It comes from you. 
God, we don't want to be ineffective as a church. We don't want to be weak as a church, God. We desire spiritual power, not for our own good, but because we know when you are at work, you change lives. You transform families. You bring revival. And God, what we must do is we must turn to you in prayer. And so, Father, I pray right now, as we prepare to praise you through these songs, God, that you would draw people to pray for one another, that if there are people here who are facing physical difficulties, there are people here dealing with emotional and spiritual difficulties, that they would go to one of these people around the room and ask for prayer. God, maybe it's we just come to the front of this room and ask you to move in power through our church family. God, we trust you, your plans are good, your plans are right. We see that through your word and we respond right now through prayer and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.